Good morning, everybody. Glad to be here, and uh, thanks for the warm welcome. Nice to see some familiar faces, too, to be here amongst friends. Uh, just this time last year, my family moved to London. Uh, so we've just been here one year. Um, before that, uh, serving for about 13 years in Hamilton, pastoring a small church plant there, and now uh, serving as an uh, associate at Redemption London, your partner church. My wife's name is Amy, and I've got three kids, 11, 9, and 6. She's not here, so she can't confirm that. But uh, my wife and my eldest are serving in kids' ministry this morning at London, which if you serve in kids' men, you know it's a hard gig to get out of. So that's why they're not here today. But uh, Lord willing, eventually we'll all be here as a family one time to visit. I met Jake. Uh, I'm glad to see you, brother. But we just met uh, several months ago for the first time. Had a great time together and enjoyed hearing what God has been doing in your life and through Jake what God has been doing in the life of this church. So again, glad to be here and to see you face to face. I want you to open up your Bibles with me to uh, the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at one psalm this morning. So open up to Psalms and just start by asking, do you know what a psalm is? A psalm is a poem. It's a song lyric. When you listen to the Bible's psalms, you are learning the songs that God wants you to sing. You are learning the prayers that God wants to teach you to pray. And there are psalms for every human emotion, thanksgiving and shame and praise and wonder and envy and sadness and even anger. Look at Psalm 137. That's where we're going to be looking today. Psalm 137 is a song for when you're angry, a prayer for when you are boiling over, when you burn, a prayer for when you're angry. And I thought this would be a fitting psalm for us to look at today, just given what's going on in our world. As we think globally, I thought this would be pretty fitting for us to hear from the Lord in this psalm today. So why don't I read it out loud for us, and then I'll pray, and then we'll look at it. So this is Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors, mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones 
and dashes them against the rock. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we remember again that we want to be servants of your word. Even the parts of your word that at first glance seem strange to us. Open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. And Father, through your transforming work and the power of the Holy Spirit, change us to love and obey the Lord Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do Christians always know what to say? Praise the Lord when they're happy. Thy will be done when things aren't going their way. Faith lets them be happy, hoppy, and neat. It lets them be chipper when others step on their feet. Christians don't blow a fuse when they have a bad day. They even remain calm when the bills are too high to pay. But must they always turn the other cheek, bless and not curse? Last summer, a London family went out for a walk, and only four came back in a hearse. Or what about refugees from Haiti, ignored, sinking in boats, Afghani Christians with ISIS's knives still at their throats? When they burst with hot steam, their hearts in a wreck. How can Christians pray when Putin sends in the tanks? How do you pray when Putin sends in the tanks? In Psalm 137, we meet a God who wants to hear our outrage, who listens to even our most candid raw, violent prayers. Psalm 137 is a particular kind of psalm, a lament psalm. It's called an imprecatory psalm. Have you heard that word before? Imprecatory. An imprecation is wishing someone's ruin. It's an angry psalm. Imprecatory psalms say things like in Psalm 94, may their camp be a desolation. Let no one live in their tents. Or Psalm 140, let burning coals fall on them. Let them be flung into pits, no more to rise. Or to be really clear, Psalm 136, oh, that you would kill the wicked. God is not shocked by your He's not shocked by it. And this psalm proves that he wants you to ask him to do something about it. He wants you to talk to him about the things that are making you angry. And Psalm 137 shows us how. How to mourn the loss of good things. How to, how to cherish the the hope of God in a broken world. 
and then how to call on God to avenge our outrage. Psalm 137 is a pattern for your angry prayers, a pattern for your angry prayers. Christians who are tormented by evil can mourn the loss of good, can cherish the hope of God, and can call on God even to avenge their outrage. Ask God to do something about the things that are making you angry. When facing an outrage, first thing, God wants us to mourn the loss of good. Now, I'm using that word outrage purposefully because there's a word that sounds like it, the word rage, all right? But a rage is usually a violent, uncontrolled anger. It's in a rage that you yell and swear. It's in a rage that you scare your kids. It's in a rage that you do stupid, selfish things. And Ephesians 4.26 says, in your anger, do not sin. That's a rage. But on the other hand, what's an outrage? An outrage is the breaking of a, a law or a code. An outrage is when something has gone too far. And so for Christians, an outrage is anything that breaks the way things ought to be as God intended. That's what an outrage is. Anything that breaks the way things ought to be as God intended. So it's an outrage when God is not loved and worshipped as he ought to be. It's an outrage when, when human beings from the womb to the hospice are not treated with respect as people made in the image of God. It's an outrage when the poor are ignored. Those are all outrages in Scripture. Good Christian anger, good Christian anger is motivated by an outrage against the way things ought to be as God intended. And so what do we do when we're facing an outrage? Well, Psalm 137 shows us first, we mourn the loss of good. We mourn the loss of good, the destruction of what ought to be. So Psalm 137 here, it takes place as God's people, the Israelites, are in captivity under the Babylonian Empire in and around the year 597 B.C. And the Babylonian ruler, Zerubbabel, there's a handle for you, Zerubbabel, he deports conquered people. So they go in, they conquer the land, and then he scatters the inhabitants to kind of quell any chance of uprising. So he deports them. And the Israelites have been conquered and deported. They're now living outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem, in Babylon, shipped far away from their homeland. Look at verse 1. It tells us the Israelites are mourning the loss of home, of Zion. It says, by the waters of Babylon, that's where they are now, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion was the name of the mountain where the temple of Jerusalem was located. It's the place of God's presence with his people. So Jerusalem, Zion, in the Israelite mind, it stands for the promises of God. It stands for the reputation of God, the presence of God, and it's gone. It's been destroyed, and what's left is being lived in by idol worshipers. 
We miss it. We weep for it. And all that it stood for, that's not the way it's supposed to be. And it's an outrage. Look at verse 2 and 3. These verses tell us that it gets worse. They say, on the willows there, on these trees in Babylon, we hung up our lyres. We hung up our guitars, our harps. We're not using them anymore. Verse 3 says, their captors would then make fun of them, right? For there are captors required of us songs. Our tormentors mirth, joy, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Where are those happy songs of Zion now? We can't sing anymore. So far from home, <laughs> how can we sing? <laughs> and when we're facing an outrage, God, invite, God invites us to mourn the loss of good. You know, some people can focus their entire lives, it seems, on one outrage. You know, someone like that, who's just kind of been so bent out of shape by one thing wrong, and they've given a large chunk of their lives to the cause, mourning it. They have this clarity about this one issue. Reminds me, uh, several years ago, seeing this documentary uh, that came out called The Dropbox. Anyone see that one? About a South Korean man by the name of Lee Jong-rak, a Christian man who would take in abandoned infants through a mail slot in his home that he'd constructed. Hence the name The Dropbox. He couldn't stand the reality that abandoned infants would be left to die on the streets if they were unwanted. It broke him, and he gave his life to looking after these abandoned babies and gave a large part of his life to that one cause. I think most of us struggle to focus in on any one thing for any too long. We just don't have the strength or the attention for it. I think the reality for most of us is our, wives, our, our, our lives wave through different outrages. I remember as a young man getting angry about the pornography industry. Takes advantage of women and degrades them, steals the consciences of men, destroys their souls. I remember at one point in my life crying to God about an honest man who couldn't get ahead. Why, God? Why? I spent most of my ministry training years working with children, and I remember getting so upset that some children would just stand by as another was getting beaten up. It's not supposed to be that way. <laughs> Isn't there any decency <laughs> left? It's an outrage. Now, I remember an old pastor saying that there's a holy discontent that sleeps in the heart of every believer. There's a holy discontent that sleeps in the heart of every believer. What's yours? What's yours? Where does that holy fire burn? This isn't what God wants. What do you mourn the loss of? What wrecks your heart? What burden has God put on you? And what about together? As a church family, I haven't known you long enough to know. What burden has God put on you together? The church that I trained at back in Hamilton years ago, for them, it was mourning the loss of a place to live for many in their city. 
When that church in Hamilton, uh, just recently they built a new church building and they added three floors above the sanctuary and made 45 apartments in it of affordable housing for people who needed supportive housing. There's a church I know of right now in Quebec and for them, it's the violence of war that breaks their heart, especially against civilians and children. And they've actually sent one of their members as a missionary to the Ukraine right now, who's helping to set up a system to help refugees get into Slovakia. So his church and their Christian friends organized. At Redemption in London, Amy and I, we've gotten uh, familiar with a ministry called Safe Families. We were introduced to it just moving there. And we've met dozens of volunteers in the church who help out, who volunteer to open up their homes to vulnerable children, to look after moms and families, mourning the loss of a stable and safe home. It shouldn't be like that. How can we help? So all of these acts of compassion, inspired by what? By outrage. (laughs) By mourning the loss of good, inspired by broken hearts. This isn't what God wants. What's yours? What's yours? God invites us to mourn the loss of good. When tormented by evil, Christians can mourn the loss of good, but God, in this psalm, also shows us that we can cherish hope. We mourn the loss of good, but we also cherish hope, cherish the hope of God in this broken world. What do I mean? I've been reading this book about how believers endured World War I and II. How do they hold on to faith during those Great wars. Well, this is what the biographer writes. He said, They understood the great war and its aftermath in the light of Scripture, believing that ours is a fallen world, yet not a forsaken one. You get the difference? Ours is a fallen world, yet not a forsaken one. And that's the same hope we see here in verses 4 to 6. Jerusalem is fallen, but we are not forsaken. And so we can have hope. So look at verse 4 here. In verse 4, they say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They're wondering how they can celebrate so far from home. But in verses 5 to 6, their sadness leads them to this deep hope, hope in God. They say, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem, and all Jerusalem stands for, above my highest Joy. They say in verse 5, we will not forget. They say in verse 6, we will remember what? Jerusalem. We will remember the presence of God, the promises of God, the reputation of God. That is going to be our joy that we cling to. Nothing looks the same in Babylon, but that doesn't mean the hope of Jerusalem is gone. God is still God. And God is still our God. And so we can hold on to hope. And we can cherish that hope. You might remember back in 2015, uh, a church in South Carolina was rocked by some shootings that happened right inside a prayer meeting. Several were killed. And the mayor of Charleston, who was a Christian, he wrote this. He said, a hateful person came to this community with some crazy idea he'd be able to divide but all he did was unite us and make us love each other even more. In an outrage, he 
is cherishing hope. God is still our God. You know, there's some people, as they look at life and the closer they look at life, they feel like, well, life is just a tragedy. You know people like that? Just, they look closely at life and they say, well, life is just a tragedy. All they see is bad news and they say things like, well, what's the point? <laughs> what's the point? Others take a different tact and they say, well, life is hard, so I'm not going to look too closely. I'm not going to look too closely. And for them, life is a comedy. Life's a comedy. And they say things like, oh, well, we'll get by somehow. <laughs> but the Christian message is not tragedy or comedy. The gospel is good news. The gospel doesn't laugh at pain, at the pain of real life, but neither does it despair. The gospel brings hope. You know, God broke the power of evil at the cross. God brought hope out of the darkest day of history. The just, the good, the blameless Son of God was tortured and crucified at the hands of his tormentors, and yet, and yet his very death accomplished our salvation. He rose again, and that is the story at the center of the universe. Resurrection, hope. And so Christians know on the darkest day, because Jesus lives, there is always hope. There is always hope. I want you to remember that Jesus' first miracle was to save a wedding dinner. Remember that story? He made 560 liters of fine wine so that a good party could become a great party. <laughs> it's maybe a little crass way to think about it. <laughs> but in reflection on that miracle, someone said, Tragedy doesn't have the last word. Tragedy doesn't have the last word. God saves the best for last. And so we can cherish the hope of God in a broken world. Helpful little book out there called A Praying Life, written several years ago by a gentleman named Paul Miller. And one of his insights about prayer is that we can always pray with hope. We can always pray with hope because of the truth that God is interested in your situation. God is interested in your situation so you can pray with hope. And if your outrage at something going on in the world, if your disappointment with how events have unfolded, if your outrage is making you cynical and you know you're cynical if you're not praying, you know you're becoming cynical if prayer is becoming hard work because you're losing hope that God is interested in your situation. <laughs> You've lost hope that God cares or can do anything about it. One way to remedy that is to begin to remember hope and to cherish hope, to remember that God is alive and he is well and he is interested in helping you because of the cross, if you've come to him in faith, you are his child. And a mother would sooner forget the nursing infant and her breast than God to forget you. And we can pray with hope. Is there anything you've stopped praying about? Any disaster? 
any trouble, <laughs> any despairing situation? Have you stopped praying about it? Did you remember hope and begin to pray again? <laughs> God is interested in your situation. Christians who are tormented by evil mourn the loss of good, cherish the hope of God. And the last one here, this psalm even leads us to ask God to do something about it. To ask God to do something about the things or the people or the events that are making you angry. So look at verses 7 to 9. This is a very chilling call for God to avenge his people. The psalmists say, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. Now, the Edomites were ancient cousins of Israel, descendants of Esau. And as a nation, they joined, they partnered with the Babylonians in their war against Jerusalem. Hence, in verse 8, the psalmist calls them daughters of Babylon, partners, children of Babylon. Then in verses 8 and 9, the psalmists give a blessing to anyone who repays the Edomites for the outrage that they've done. Look at these verses again. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Just as they murdered our children, may their infants be killed. Just as they wiped out our future, may theirs be ended too. May they get what's coming to them. May just rewards be handed out. They're boiling over. Such wickedness has been committed, and they ask God to do something about it. Now, this kind of prayer really jars some people, really troubles some folks when they get to Psalm 137. How could God be so harsh? How could God approve of this kind of violent retribution? One scholar by the name of Derek Rishmawi, he says, when you're reading a psalm like this, there's three questions you've got to ask to make sense of these kinds of prayers. I thought it was a good little list. Let me share it with you. Three questions to ask when you're reading these psalms, if, if they do trouble you. The first question is, ask yourself, who is the best judge of all? You're reading this psalm. Ask yourself, who is the best judge of all? Listen to this. God is the final judge trustworthy judge. Only he has the right to judge people. Only he has the right to take a life. Only he knows what people truly deserve. Only he knows what people will do if they're not stopped. And you'll notice as you read the imprecatory Psalms in Scripture, Psalm 137 and the others, that the authors of the Psalms are always asking God to take ownership of the problem. It's God's job to hand out the punishment. Vengeance is entrusted to him. It's never something the psalmist stands up and says, well, I'm going to grab my sword, and I'm going to go out and make things right. No, it's always God. <laughs> would you, would you, in your timing, in your wisdom, 
And in your justice, would you do it? We don't take vengeance ourselves as God's job. He's the only one fit to judge. So ask yourself that. Who is the best judge of all? The second thing you can ask yourself when you read these Psalms is, how important is context? (laughs) What's going on in the history of this situation as I read it? How important is the context? Listen to this. Violence in the Psalms served a limited So time restraints served a limited, focused purpose in God's economy, the judgment of people with whom God had been patient for hundreds of years. And so we need to remember that when we read this psalm, that when this psalm was written at this point in the story of of redemption, God is working through a specific nation, Israel. And the enemies of this nation are the enemies of God, and God is working through this nation and their prayers to show God's grace, but also to show God's judgment. And so context is important. We aren't in Israel's historical situation today. We work and we pray in the age of the church, which is global, and in the age of the spirit. And so our emotions might be the same as the psalmists, but our application is going to be different because we're in a different context. So ask yourself, who is the best judge of all? How important is context? And the last question you can ask yourself is, how do I read the whole Bible story? How do I read the whole Bible? Where does this fit in the big picture? The story arc of the whole of Scripture forbids violence to Christians for spreading the faith. So when you read the whole story of the Bible, you'll see that things do point towards Jesus. And Jesus forbids Christians taking up the sword in his name. We are instead instructed to bless our enemies, forgive our enemies, to leave vengeance in God's hands. And so if these Psalms trouble you, You mustn't reject God because of them, because of Old Testament violence or these imprecatory psalms, because they are only one scene in the story. They're one scene in the story, a story that ends with Jesus. What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus came down to earth as an infant himself, and he was taken and he was dashed Not against rocks, but against the cross for the salvation of all who come to him so that we wouldn't be doomed to destruction. So this psalm is for us too. So when we pray this psalm, we need to keep the whole story of the Bible in mind. So what do you do with a psalm like this? Psalm 137. What is its use to you today and this week? Is the main point of a psalm like this just to let us blow off some steam, go out behind the barn and recite Psalm 137? No, the goal of this psalm is that you go to God and you ask him, you talk to him about the things that are making you angry. This becomes a pattern for your angry prayers. When Putin sends in the tanks on the other side of the world, you are not helpless. At the very least, 
you can say to a man like Putin, have I got a psalm for you? And we can pray. You know, witnessing the atrocities and the barbarism and the savagery in Ukraine, including the Russian bombing of a maternity ward and hospital. I mean, how do you pray? Well, those events and thinking about the Psalms led one brother to pray like this. Listen to his prayer as an example to, to, for you. He prayed, Father, as you did with evil King Nebuchadnezzar, take away Putin's authority and power. Drive him far away. Plant his face so low to the earth, he eats grass like an ox and is drenched with dew. Read Daniel 4 for that one. He says, put an end to his evil making against your image bearers and Jesus' church in Ukraine and Russia. Father, either bring him to yourself, put him down, or take him out. You are sovereign over all kingdoms. You alone are God. You alone are worthy of our adoration, affection, and allegiance for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. That's how you pray Psalm 137. There were some prayers that came out of that shooting back in 2015 in Charleston. Some of the survivors of that event were asked by reporters, what's your response? Listen to how they pray. One said, I forgive you, talking to the perpetrator. I forgive you. My family forgives you. We would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Do that and you'll be better off than you are right now. Someone else said, as we said in Bible study, we enjoyed you, but may God have mercy on you. And then someone said, I am a work in progress, and I acknowledge that I'm very angry. We have no room for hate. We have to forgive. I pray God on your soul, and I also thank God I won't be around when your judgment day comes with him. In the heat of the moment, I think we can honor prayers like that. That's how you pray, Psalm 137. When you're outraged, Psalm 137 will help you to ask God to do something about it. Three important things to remember as you use Psalm 137 to pray. The first one is, may it teach you how to pray fully. To pray fully. By this I mean remember your loss, but also remember hope. Pray fully. Loss and hope. Remember justice and mercy. W. Ross, he said, while it is a terrible thing to desire God's judgment to fall upon unrepentant creatures, it is worse still for evil to go unpunished. It's a terrible thing to desire God's judgment to fall upon unrepentant creatures. So we pray for God's mercy on our enemies but it is worse still for evil to go unpunished, so we pray for God's justice to be done. We pray fully. So, pray fully. The second thing is be real. I think Psalm 137 helps you to pray real prayers, not to hide out trying to find the right language to be proper in your prayers. When you talk to God, you can use real words. You can express real feelings. Psalm 137 shows us that. Especially if you're angry and outraged, you can talk it through with God. He is not shocked. And then let him move you through mourning to hope as you ask him to act. 
Pray fully, be real. My last encouragement to you here is at the very end of it all, remember who takes care of business better than you do. As you pray Psalm 137, remember who takes care of business even better than you do. Your prayers for abortion doctors to be stymied, corrupt politicians to lose their jobs, or Russian tanks to be blown to bits are always committing ultimate justice and how that's worked out to God. You know, sometimes we'll have the opportunity to act, to do something about it, but most often we pray knowing all we can do is pray. All we can do is pray. We have our limits, but God is sovereign and God is in control and we are not God. We don't know what people deserve We remember that all of us deserve wrath but for the mercy of Jesus. And so ultimately justice comes from the Lord. And that's how you can pray against an outrage. When facing an evil tormentor, God invites you to mourn the loss of good, to cherish the hope of God, and to ask him to do something about it. Let me pray. Father, would you please teach us to pray and teach us to pray more fully, embracing both mercy and justice and teach us to pray with truth and honesty, not concerned about how we are being perceived by you in our prayers. You know all things. Help us to come to you in truth and honesty with our anger, our disappointments. And Lord, we do ask that you would act Act in our lives, in our city, and in our world. Would you show mercy to victims and those who are being oppressed? And Lord, would you bring an end to those who are acting in evil and wickedness? Your will be done, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.